Hello and welcome to another episode of the United Nations House Scotland podcast. My name is Jessica Craig and today I'm joined by my guest Varsha Table to talk about women, peace and security. Varsha is the Hillary Rodham Clinton Research Fellow at Georgetown University's Institute of Women, Peace and Security. Hi Varsha, I'm so excited to speak to you today. Can you possibly start off just by telling me a little bit about yourself and your work? Absolutely. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to discuss my work and especially this important issue of women, peace and security. Um, as for myself, well, I'm originally from a tiny little village in the Sindh province of Pakistan. Um, and I grew up uh, just like many girls in the area without any formal education. But then I completed my master's in the Global Human Development Program at Georgetown last year. Um, and after that, I joined the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security as the Hillary Rodham Clinton Research Fellow, uh, where I focus on the um, rapidly evolving impact of women on peace building and uh, you know, institutional stability worldwide um, through, through various research projects. Thanks very much. That all sounds really interesting. Uh, so, of course, today we're going to be talking about women, peace and security. But just to start off, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with sort of the academic research around women and gender and peace and security, uh, let's just start off by talking about why an analysis of gender and looking at women's experiences are essential to our understanding of uh, conflict, post-conflict recovery and peace building. Um, so, I guess my first question is, what is the purpose of applying this lens of gender to looking at peace and conflict? And what happens, what does it reveal when we do this? That's a, that is a great question. And often, of course, that has been discussed, and which is the reason <laughs> this whole resolution came about as well. But this, the very simple answer would be, what because of the disproportionate um, impact on, on women of, of uh, conflict and, and security issues. I mean, and now more than ever, the international community recognizes the importance of incorporating a gender lens in peace and security efforts. Because like I said before, also it's well known that violent conflict disproportionately affects women and girls and, and intensifies um, sort of uh, pre-existing gender inequalities and, and discrimination. Um, and I guess it's, it's important also to see women not just as this little vulnerable group or, you know, victims of, of peace and of, of conflict and security, but also as active agents of peace um, in, in armed conflict. I mean, uh, it's important to to highlight the, the various uh, peace building strategies and activities that women are involved in in their communities. Um, and you know to see their role as as key players and and change agents of peace, um, it has been largely unrecognized. So it's, this is the reason why it's necessary, it's important, it's very crucial to apply the gender lens to peace, conflict, and security efforts. Um, and you know acknowledging and and integrating the different uh, understanding and experiences and, and capabilities of women into all aspects of, of peace building, peace operations. It is essential um, for the success of uh, the, you know, the UN peacekeeping efforts and sustaining peace all around the world. And, uh, you know, it's, so, so when you say, what does this reveal? I mean, so, I mean so, I, you know, so many things, but one of the very important research that um, came out of, of the Institute, uh, you know, Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security, my colleagues uh, you know, wrote that brilliant report and it was so fascinating to see. And it's also so true because it was like, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. Because it's like, so, so the recent research suggests that, you know, masculinized cultures and specifically men who, who idealize toxic masculine notions and, and, and adhere to um, patriarchal values of honor and, you know, it, it increases the likelihood of political violence. So, you know, in line with these findings, we see that countries with significant gendered inequality are are more likely to 
prioritize violent masculinities and, and, and therefore experience you know, increased levels of organized violence. Another reason, of course, to, to look at the, uh, the, the unique uh, challenges and the specific challenges uh, that uh, women are facing, uh, especially in these highly, highly uh, you know, patriarchal uh, societies. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an interesting finding, isn't it? And I think your reflections kind of brought out something for me. And you mentioned, you know, we're not just talking about women as the sort of subjects of violence and um, patriarchy here. This field is, you know, it goes beyond those sort of stereotypical notions as of women as um, just kind of essentialized as victims of conflict. This field also kind of looks at women's roles, as you mentioned, in mm -hmm. peace building, sort of formalized within institutions such as the UN, which we'll, we'll go on to talk about in a bit, but also kind of grassroots from the bottom up. But mm -hmm. also, I find it so interesting, you know, it also kind of extends to women's roles as actors and agents in conflict. Mm -hmm. And then also when you're speaking about kind of masculinized cultures I was thinking mm -hmm. about militaries as well Absolutely. and that obviously comes into it and peacekeeping culture too mm -hmm. so it's a really it's a really broad field and it's mm -hmm. a really interesting one and it highlights all of these different roles that women can assume and I guess the thing that draws me to it is it's about making women and dynamics of gender in these big issues of peace and conflict mm -hmm. visible because women are not invisible beings or small beings they're very much actors and agents in all of these different issues related to peace and conflict Absolutely. so that's that's why i love it i think it's such a big meaty interesting <laughs> issue to, to kind mm -hmm. of work on um but yeah you've hinted at the kind of the the un side of things and that's obviously mm -hmm. one of the, the the main things that we talk about on this podcast and you've kind of alluded to the resolutions as well. Mm -hmm. So if we kind of move to the context of the United Nations and its work on women, peace and security, I wonder if you could talk us through briefly the background to the women, peace and security agenda, and particularly that thing that we think of as the very important sort of almost starting point of it all, um, mm -hmm. UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so obviously a huge achievement. So it took um, it took both diplomats at the United Nations um, and activists, uh, women peace builders, um, uh, to to make it happen. And of course, it didn't come out of nowhere. There was a lot of lead up, um, including the UN World Conferences on Women, to get to that point. And. It's a major accomplishment in terms of policy and rhetoric. I mean, women have been written in officially. And I mean, it acknowledges different roles that women play, um, as I'm sure you're aware of the, the four pillars of, of 1325, the participation, um, conflict prevention, protection, and uh, relief and recovery. But um, as we see with any of these uh, big resolutions or, or anything that passes, uh, as important as it is, the issue or the challenge is, is always about um, implementation. So UN peacekeeping operations um, are, like, are mandated by the Security Council to, to implement the Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security, right, across all peace functions, especially the four pillars, as I just uh, mentioned. Um, and obviously, 1325 was, um, you know, the first resolution that recognized the disproportionate and um, and unique impact of armed conflict, as we discussed above as well, like on women and girls, like acknowledged the contributions that women and girls make to conflict prevention, peacekeeping, um, and all that. And of course, you know, I mean, the there were su subsequent resolutions on women, peace and security after that have since been adopted. And uh, all of them stress the importance of women's leadership and, uh, you know, meaningful participation and the prevention and um, and resolution of conflicts, and uh, as but but the implementation of women, peace, and security priorities is a you know like a it requires a lot of different moving pieces. It requires political will. So we see that the important component of Resolution thirteen twenty five is um, you know the inclusion of women in peace processes, and and as twenty twenty was the the 20th anniversary of uh, 1325, we, we saw that 
some of the statistics showed that between 1992 and I think it was 2018, um, that women constituted only 13% of negotiators, 3% of mediators, and um, I think it was only 4% of signatories in, in major peace processes. and was tracked by the Council on Foreign Relations. And so importantly, the vast majority of peace agreements actually do not explicitly gender uh, or address gender. So, uh, for example, again, some of the research that our, the Institute did and found out that in 2018, out of 52 agreements, only four contained gender-related provisions, um, down from, in fact, down from 39% in 2015, according to uh, the UN Women Research. So all of this shows that, sure, we do have these uh, you know, these, uh, this 1325 and all that, this, how far we have yet to go. Do you think that the, the fact that some of the resolutions focus more on protection mm-hmm. uh, might be an issue because of the, the way that that then portrays women as needing uh, to be absolutely. protected rather than as participants? That is, that is a very, very valid point because, and that is true, because out of these four pillars of 1325, we have seen the least amount of research and the least amount of, of efforts being done, especially in the relief and recovery part. Um, and you're right, absolutely right about the protection part. That is, it, it exactly, that's the kind of image that it portrays still, that, oh, women need protecting. Oh, they do. I mean, because, you know, all of this violence and, and conflict, and of course, we're going to get to the, uh, the COVID impacts and all that. But... But that does not mean that, again, seeing women just as this vulnerable group needs protecting, whereas they can be essential, uh, they can be part of the solution. They can, they can be leaders. You're putting them in um, equal, on, on, you know, on, on, a, on a table as, uh, as leaders. And so the, the, the fourth pillar, the relief and recovery pillar, is the one that has the least amount of research done, the least amount of work that is done. And this is exactly the, again, alluding to the research at the Institute, and, and one of the research projects that I worked on um, initially was uh, in the wake of these peace negotiations in Afghanistan uh, to, look at, to look at the opportunities in the, in the post-conflict, the window of opportunities, um, and how uh, women can be put uh, on an equal uh, standing as men uh, in order to make decisions. Um, and it is essential, therefore, I mean, I think, so, so that's the thing. Like, so the first pillar is participation. And that basically means putting women in leadership positions um, who do not just need protecting, but want, uh, have to be put on an equal pedestal as men and their voices should be heard. Uh, they should be, uh, their, their their thoughts, their views, their experiences should be factored in in the in the uh, peace building, in the restructuring of the country, in the economic, social, financial policies. Um, so what you said is absolutely uh, valid, and that is, of course, uh, something that has been critiqued a lot. But I would also um, like to point out, Jessica, that the protection part. I mean. Especially look at, I mean, in the wake of, of this global pandemic, I mean, so domestic violence, I was blown away by some of these statistics that came out. I mean, we know this is important because we know that when women suffer, their families and communities also suffer. So, of course, protection is a necessary component. But as you said, this cannot be the, the only one. And since we are on the topic of protection as well, might as well just share the, the stats that were just mind blowing. So... According to the research, one out of three women in the world, this is like after 20 years of 1325, we still have these stats. One out of three women in the world experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. And that is according to the World Health Organization. And especially during times of crisis, such as natural disasters and you know wars, it, the, the pandemic. So the risk of gender-based violence escalates. In situations like these, of course, protection, as I said before, also comes into play. It's important. And, and this, like I said, is also holds true for the, for the, for the virus, the, the pandemic. I mean, take the example of China. There were staggering stats. I mean, recent statistics confirm that the number of domestic violence cases reported to the local police tripled in February, which was the height of the, 
the, the virus crisis uh, compared to the previous year. Stay-at-home lockdowns, you know, in response to the, the crisis have, have brought dramatic increases of domestic violence incidents um, that are reported all around the world, like from, from Brazil to, to Italy, to Spain, to India, to Pakistan. Um, I think it was in Australia that during the, during the outbreak, Google had registered the most searches for, for domestic violence help. Uh, with an increase of about, it was shockingly, 75% in the past five years. So I am definitely not going to take away the, the importance of the protection part, but I completely also, with, I am with you on the importance of not just fully focusing on this, but also giving uh, leadership roles and uh, you know, in, in making them an equal part of the re relief and recovery process. Yeah, and I think that's, thank you, that's a really sort of, um, important nuance, isn't it? That you know, I wouldn't ever mean to say that I don't think that that protection pillar <laughs> is important, but I think okay. that there is sometimes been within the, the sort of the diplomatic side of the UN a tendency mm -hmm. to bring that to the fore and maybe to forget about the the other pillars, particularly you know, as you mentioned, relief and recovery and participation, mm -hmm. and we know that those things were still sort of. The, the figures on women's participation are still quite staggeringly low but yeah there's some really shocking statistics and I think it speaks to the fact that we need that kind of all-round approach so that women are protected from sexual violence but also women are in positions of decision making making mm -hmm. policy making sure that you know the provisions that women need in these situations are there and mm -hmm. I think it links into broader conversations as well and we have an episode coming about um, sexual and reproductive health rights and it links mm -hmm. into wider conversations about when women are in positions of power they are perhaps better able to ensure that um, access to the resources that they need so mm -hmm. sexual and reproductive health resources for example are in place so mm -hmm. I think yeah that that really represents to me the fact that we do need all of these things and we need this to be sort of seen as a holistic agenda rather than really taking one of the pillars mm -hmm. um, so thank you for that another thing that came to mind for me when we were talking about that is the fact that participation in itself is also not not you know it's not fully sufficient because I think something that I remember reading often when I was doing my research on women peace and security a few years ago is that we would never expect a few women in positions of power to be able to represent all women oh absolutely often God, we yeah. see that when mm -hmm. women rise to for example in a political party to a, a sort of position of power they're more likely to represent the views of that party than they are mm -hmm. to represent um, women's issues and, and issues of gender so we yeah I think it's just another sort of piece of evidence towards why we need to focus across all of these different issues. Jessica I could not agree more I mean so I and I know this is not the podcast is not about my background but so you know I, I think I hinted at that at the beginning that I I grew up without formal education. Also, I come. I'm a I'm a farmer's daughter. I grew up in a very very rural area. I mean, 20 years of no formal education in Pakistan, you know. And then then I received my education in the U.S. But all this to say that the the female leaders, some of whom that are chosen not, of course, at, as heads of state, but even the local level leaders, the, I don't know, like some leaders in Islamabad, Karachi, whatever. They because this is the country is there's so much of class divisions, so multi-level, multi-layered, um, you know, issues with, with me being an ethnic, so I'm an ethnic minority, I'm a religious minority, all these things in the country, that they oftentimes do not represent the, the issues that women in the rural areas are facing. Um, it, it's, and it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's just one example. Um, and every... A section I feel that that it's there's very hard to get a fuller representation of female experiences because they vary across regions, they vary across socioeconomic backgrounds. It's not we can't just say, oh, a woman, a woman leader, she'll represent all women. So you are apt. I'm so glad that you raised that because it's absolutely true. Yeah, I do not sometimes feel represented by you know the, the, the women, women leaders because the, the experience is different. I mean, of course, there's so much of commonality, but 
so many of these unique experiences also differ by geographies, by religious backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds and all that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so interesting that you draw it as well, that sort of rural versus urban dimension mm-hmm. too, because I, I don't think I'd necessarily thought about that before. I think a lot in terms of when I'm thinking about women, particularly in leadership, and we're not mm-hmm. just talking about peace and security, but leadership in general, mm-hmm. I think a lot about race and class. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, we see it, a lot of um, sort of well-educated white women succeed mm-hmm. to positions of power. But then, you know, we can't expect them to represent everyone's experiences at all. And we, we have to bring in these dimensions that the kind of the intersections of race and gender and class and geography and sexuality and all of these things. And yeah, it, it does attest to how complex and kind of varied this field is. But I think that's what makes it such an exciting thing to be studying is, mm-hmm. you know, how do we reach a point where we can kind of get representation and sort of participation of women of all kinds of different backgrounds so yeah I think it's, it's really it just always it makes me quite excited thinking about the, the kind of obviously it's disheartening because there's so much still to be done and this mm-hmm. agenda has been around for 20 years mm-hmm. but the kind of I think that's what attracts me to sort of feminist scholarship of mm-hmm. these kinds of issues is it's this, there's a lot to unlock and you know to see all these different dimensions mm-hmm. absolutely so if we move on to talking about sort of contemporary conflicts just mm-hmm. briefly you have mentioned already sort of women's experiences of sexual violence and domestic violence in crises beyond just conflict as well particularly the pandemic if we if we talk for a moment about sort of um contemporary conflicts Mm-hmm. What sort of issues um, do you think that women are facing in conflicts that are ongoing today? Um, that is, um, yeah, that's a great question, Jessica. And, you know, I would be remiss not to mention uh, Tigray, not just for, not just in response to the to the question, but also something that should be, uh, pe- people, more people should be aware of what's going on in Tigray. It's a co- current conflict going on, so I just have to mention this. Um, you know, women are experiencing conflict in, in so many communities, in so many countries, in so many different ways. Um, and as I mentioned Tigray, I would also say so civil war um, has raged in the Ethiopian northern, so the Tigray region. And women and girls are under attack. I mean, amidst a media blackout, the, the world is is slowly catching up and learning about the scope of the brutality, the sheer brutality. There are coordinated rapes in Tigray that are being deliberately used as a weapon of war, as has always been the case. Um, and there is only one medical facility in the region that is equipped to sort of respond to the rape survivors. You know, and, and of course the UN and all these other big agencies have yet to act. Uh, the, the media briefs, the press releases slowly and gradually are being made, but this is an important issue that, that requires more attention, of course, and, and urgent attention. So besides these these active ongoing conflicts and, and, and violence with their wars uh, are being waged on, they are, the, the, the tactics of like, female bodies as uh, the war of weapons and how like you know sexual violence is on the rise and all and you know we we, we know that we learned that we through the, and you, I think you also mentioned that uh, early on in that discussion and how um, the the army the soldiers uh, and the brutality uh, of, of soldiers on on women and their bodies so that being said in the ongoing conflict these kinds of things happen but in countries like Pakistan where there's not really a war, war in general going on, but uh, but every day sort of like <laughs> seems like a war for when it comes to women because of the um, just the endemic violence against women. Uh, you know, because we we know that the well peace or or peace is not just the absence of uh, you know wars and, and conflicts or I mean conflicts are kind of different kinds of degrees of conflicts that always exist in the community but like it's not just like oh bombing or, or, or firing and all that's not just it but it's the 
the um, absence or the removal of, of these structural inequalities, uh, the end of uh, the, the violence against women, the accessible health care and all. So in Pakistan, I would like to mention, because while well, I am from Pakistan, um, there has been, in, I think since last two to three years, there's been a women's rally or a women's march on every International Women's Day. And it is basically, it's just women demanding safety from endemic violence, women demanding accessible health care uh, in a nation where nearly half of women are, are malnourished. And just a basic economic justice of, of safe working environments and, and equal opportunities for women and the kinds of resistance they face. I mean, from their doctored videos of the rallies uh, to, to suggest that the women had committed blasphemies. I'm sure Pakistan, you know, the, the blasphemy is, the, is an issue there. Uh, there's a law against blasphemy. And so using that component of the law against women, against women's cry for justice, women's cry for safety, women's cry for equal rights. Uh, so there is an example of Tigray where, you know, the way th th those uh, uh, things are being weaponized against women. And then there is this other section where there's, there might, may not necessarily be an active war going on, but, you know, this kinds of stuff happening. Um, there are, women are continuously contending with practices such as honor killings, uh, acid burnings, child marriage, and, and you know, gender apartheid in general. Um, in Pakistan, I think, so there are four provinces, and three of them have, the, the legal age for marriage is 16 for girls. Um, and the, I think the one province that has kind of, you know, diverted and said no, 18, you know, could be the, the minimum. Uh, of course, the implementation remains a challenge. Um, just these issues, they are, you know, I mean, yeah, so it's just, it's always the issue with that. Um, and once again, I feel like um, so much work needs to be done. Um, so just these resolutions, just these NAPs, National Action Plans, are not enough. There needs to be a very thorough, deliberate, um, urgent effort in order to address these uh, these challenges and issues. And, and oh, yeah, one thing that I was forgetting, I'll add that Afghanistan, again, uh, based on the research that I've done in the, uh, the wake of the peace agreements, I mean, we see the way women are being treated by this fringe group, uh, by the Taliban's, uh, the number of seats they're given at the negotiating table, it's, it's, it's absurd. And, um, uh, the kinds of issues and, and difficulties they face every single day. I mean, there's a, uh, an advocate or judge, a female judge is being killed. You have your regular girls' schools being attacked. Um, just all sorts of issues, um, you know, across different countries, um, depending on, um, yeah, just the, just the situation, just the kind of um, state there is. It's, it's very difficult. Thank you. And yeah, so I think that raises for me the way in which conflict and, you know, we're not necessarily talking about, as you said, active war. This can also be, you know, after peace agreements, we can see women being um, sort of victims of the democratic backsliding and return to, you know, after a period maybe of international intervention, return to sort of a you know, more difficult circumstances and also that, you know, after conflicts are formally over, there can remain huge challenges and inequalities for a long time after and how this is kind of affecting all different aspects of women's lives. So, you know, um, health and economic opportunity and bodily autonomy and all of these things. And as you were speaking, I was thinking as well, we have to remember that, so for example, in, in Tigray, all of this is taking, you know, it's happening in the context of a major global health crisis. And so mm -hmm. when we think about access to healthcare mm -hmm. being withdrawn or, or being very scarce, we've got to think about those added challenges. And uh, for example, um, the humanitarian situation in Yemen, there's a sort of compounding of so many different issues and, and lots of actually individual different healthcare issues happening at the same time alongside a lack of healthcare facilities and that's going to affect women tremendously and something that you said earlier really stands out for me that when women suffer their families and communities suffer too and I, mm -hmm. I think we see that in terms of 
health and so the health of families and um, maternity and the experience of childbirth and also economically as well where absolutely where families are relying on on women to be able to be wage earners and as you alluded to maybe you know definitely not having in all parts of the world kind of economic parity with men and not you know having the sort of safe working conditions mm-hmm. and um, sort of wage security that they really need so yeah we can see we can see that um, sort of conflict and its aftermath can affect sort of all areas of, of women's lives. Absolutely and Jessica you uh, the the point about being wage earner and especially in the conflict zones where women, men are absent from from the families um, it's the women in charge of, of both economic and familial responsibilities and especially in countries that are uh, you know that that do, do not guarantee the the freedom and this uh, and the freedom or the safety to women. It's it's just doubly challenging. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, different dimensions. Yeah, absolutely. I I did some research a few years ago on um, women's experiences of conflict and peace building in Liberia, and a big thing that the UN was involved in was sort of. Um, promoting women's entrepreneurship and women's small businesses and mm-hmm. um, setting up infrastructure for um, small business loans for women and so I think that's a, a kind of an important dimension as well isn't it that as you say women can be the kind of the wage earner if men are not there. Absolutely and one more quick thing about Liberia Jessica was um, that the police reforms so a lot of the women were also uh, we're, we're missing from the security sector. So uh, the, the police training, so recruiting more women police officials, uh, that is also something that happened in, in Liberia was great. So uh, again, like, and, and, and yeah, you're right about the, you know, promoting women businesses, promoting civil uh, society organizations for women, uh, giving them the, the loan or the seed money to, to generate business and all. Yeah, very, very important. And the same thing happened in the, in the wake of a peace agreement in, in Colombia, um, uh, Sri Lanka and, uh, you know, other conflict-affected countries. Varsha, in your experience as a researcher and a practitioner, why do you think that it's so crucial that women participate in peace building and post-conflict recovery? And what does it look like when women are able to participate in these roles that are described within the pillars of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda? Um, so, you know, Jessica, as we discussed as well, women are routinely excluded from the post-conflict uh, processes that, that determine power distribution, wealth sharing patterns, uh, you know, social development priorities and approaches to justice. So, so the research that drips on on advancing women's participation in, in post-conflict context it reports that, and I'm quoting directly from the research, it's like women face considerable gendered barriers to meaningful political participation in the post-conflict context, including, but not limited to, discrimination, hostility, intimidation, and even violence. And now this is something, something I, at least I, I grew up seeing, and I'm sure we've all encountered it in one way or another, it's like the violence against women is manifested in many ways. I mean, you know, it's like including stunted lives and, you know, unfulfilled potentials, uh, the lack of decision-making power, lack of education and, and agency. Um, at least I grew up in a village like that, with you know, like no education and everything. So it's, it's rooted in the, in the experiences of women who are unable to read, write, you know, access healthcare or, or, or take up paid employment, really, to secure themselves and, and their families. So, so it's so the post-conflict period. It it really is a window of opportunity. It can it can open opportunities to build new rules, new institutions, and and engage new leaders to restore stability. Um, and I think the so the recognition and and promotion of women's rights, women's contributions, and and women leaders is it is therefore critical during the post-conflict period. Um, and as this also, of course, um, speaks to the to the fourth pillar of, of 1325 that we were talking about earlier uh, and how it entails women's participation in the process of reconstruction and, and, and development. So, um, yeah, and, you know, women should be empowered to exert influence not only in the parliament, but, but also in their homes and, and their communities. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it speaks to as well, doesn't it, the, the sort of the long duration of in which this work takes place. We are talking about um, in situations where there is active conflict, we're talking about peace processes, and we're also talking about in the post-conflict period in mm-hmm. reconstruction and recovery, and then what's the long-term vision for how a society will change after mm-hmm. conflict to try to prevent a return to conflict and also to, to kind of affect change in people's everyday lives going forward and mm-hmm. yeah these these things of women's positions in power in in government and sort of the formal institutions but also yeah where do they kind of where are they able to exert their their rights and and also as you say influence within the home mm-hmm. and things like that as well so yeah that's that's a fantastic point thank you <laughs> yeah absolutely so thinking about some of these remaining challenges and if we go back to the kind of UN framework so the women peace and security agenda we have had for 20 just over 20 years now mm-hmm. and we acknowledge that there's still quite a long way to go with these formal kind of institutional processes and you've spoken a bit about the NAPs as well I wonder mm-hmm. actually before we go any further whether you just want to briefly explain about the, the NAPs as well for our listeners Yes, absolutely. So um, NAPs are these national action plans that the, with the 1325, uh, the countries uh, around the world, the member countries at least at the UN, were, were advised, were mandated, were encouraged to have their own national action plans for 1325 women, peace and security in their own countries. And so... Uh, and that basically, again, uh, looks at all the all the dimensions of, of women, peace and security, fo- focusing on the four pillars, um, increasing the number of uh, female leaders, uh, supporting women's organizations, and, you know, just contextualizing the framework of women, peace and security going to their countries. And it was interesting, again, to find out after 20 years of 1325 that to date, um, only 83 nations, which is ba- basically an equivalent of 43% of all UN member states, which is less than 50%, uh, developed and, and followed up on national action plans. And of uh, the, so the 83 adopted plans, um, there are only 28 um, have an allocated budget for implementation. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is, while it's important and it was a great initiative, and of course, again, as always, a, lo- a lot more work to be done, uh, I was looking at the Afghanistan National Action Plan, and while it is, you know, great on paper, it's it's incredible, um, it hits all the right, you know, boxes. Um, there is money with implement, like money is an issue. Uh, support from the international community is an issue for countries like Afghanistan, um, with with the with the constant constant vicious circle of. Um, or the continuous circle of, of violence, that uh, implementation remains a challenge, a huge challenge. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's that's on national action plans. Clearly, a lot more countries need to adopt that and then figure out uh, ways, or, or the UN and the other international agencies need to, to help them, support them uh, in order to implement these, these plans. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the funding. So with something like a national action plan that doesn't have any funding behind it it really is is kind of paying lip service to mm-hmm. the issues that women face only and it's so difficult to kind of actually do anything transformative promote any action if there's no funding behind it <laughs> um, and on the idea of the the national action plans as well I think about the UK national action plans that, that we've produced and one of the big issues that I identify with those and this relates to I guess global power relations and kind of maybe colonial kind of relations as well is that something I identified in the the British ones is that they are very outward facing they look at Britain's role in addressing conflict in other parts of the world but something that they've been heavily criticized for is not addressing the conflict in Northern Ireland sufficiently Mm -hmm. And not looking at the gender dimensions of that, which are inarguably there and definitely remain, you know, an issue to this day. So mm-hmm. there's definitely something in there about the the way that this speaks to power as well mm-hmm. in in kind of global relations. 
Absolutely. Yeah, these are sometimes, uh, unfortunately, the, the naps are also very politicized. Um, yeah, in, in some of the contextual frameworks. Um, and as you mentioned Northern Ireland, um, it was very interesting to see some of the amazing research done by uh, lots of these wonderful agencies, um, including I think DRIPS also looked at that the, the women's peace building movements and, and you know, the, the grassroots and local organizations and the civil society organizations that women are promoting peace in countries like Northern Ireland, again, mentioned Colombia, uh, Sri Lanka remains a, a huge example as, as well in Jaffna area for, for Tamil women, uh, Kashmir. So uh, I remember reading a lot about these, these regions and, and women's movements across these countries. Okay, so my, my point in um, mentioning the National Action Plans was to talk about, let's look to the future and think about the future of the approach to women, peace and security. This is a bit of a big question, but <laughs> what do you think, considering all of these issues that we've discussed, what do you think is kind of in the future of the women, peace and security agenda and the general women, peace and security work of the UN? We have seen, you know, there were there was a period where there was a number of years with no new resolutions and then mm -hmm. we got a few resolutions coming out for the 20th anniversary which seems to mm -hmm. kind of just add on to the work that's already been done and restate some of it but do you think that in the future we will see many more resolutions or do you think that they maybe need to move towards a new framework um, mm -hmm. do you think that the, the national action plans will continue to play a sort of major role and then as well something that I'll just kind of tack on because it's something that I've noticed emerging in the last few years but how do you think that the the women peace and security agenda does or should kind of link up with the children peace and security agenda too so what do you kind of think is next what's in the future in terms of addressing some of the the remaining criticisms and issues with this institutional approach this, as you said, is a, is a very big question. I'm not sure if I have a very big answer to this, but um, I guess there are, you know, there are always new issues that the WPS agenda needs to adapt or, or, or confront. I mean, uh, you know, like violent extremism, new technologies, um, climate change, uh, the global pandemic, you know, um, and I think I you know, climate has become such a threat multiplier, the climate change, the climate issue, that I think I probably, you know, would like to see uh, more efforts done on this front, and especially under understanding the, the nexus of, 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 you know, climate and, and, and gender. Um, so, you know, like I said, climate change is, is widely and increasingly recognized as a threat multiplier that can you know, contribute to, to heightened fragility. But but conflict is not inevitable, so it can be protected. And and I think it's important that women at the at the grassroots are uniquely positioned to, you know, contribute to sustainable natural resource management, um, you know, climate resilient communities and and, and kind of enhanced peace and stability. Um, and I think for, for an agency like the UN, I think so policymakers and, and practitioners I think promoting women's contributions can accelerate gains across peace, conservation, and sustainability. Something that I know the UN is more focused on right now, again because of the the, the threat that climate change is um, is posing. And and I feel like I, I mean I'm not sure if I'm well positioned to talk about any kind of new frameworks and stuff like that, but I feel like other ways that this could be the work, uh, you know, could be more pronounced, I think, is how can we be thinking more about, you know, intersections and, and breaking down silos. Um, you know, we could, you know, the, there could be more work on calling for implementation of existing resolutions, because I feel like we do have a pretty, pretty solid ground here for the 1325 with the subsequent um, resolutions with the NAPs, as we talked about, but, you know, you there's there is a very very uh you know a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of implementation so i feel like implementations of, of existing resolutions 
and of course, with adding on to these different threat multipliers, uh, the, and you know how the, the pandemic has shifted the world, all these things, and maybe increasing more political will, um, I think, could be probably the better way because we can't just be coming up, I think, with with the new resolutions every few years and and what happened to the previous ones. But I think like just focusing a lot more and working to better develop ways and strategies uh, around implementing what we have, I think, would be something that I I think is probably the future or should be the future of WPS at the UN. Yeah, that's that's great. And you've really hit on what is my frustration with the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Not that anyone asked me, not that I'm either a scholar or a practitioner <laughs> in this area, but as someone who in university did a bit of research on this, mm-hmm. find it so interesting and quite frustrating to look at the evolution of the um, resolutions and see repetition of the same kind of calls but no, exactly. no translation Absolutely. into action and Absolutely. kind of secondary to that also dilution of some of the language particularly mm-hmm. in the, the 2020 resolutions there was a big sort of political bust up mm-hmm. about getting references to women's bodily autonomy and sexual and reproductive health rights in there because of course the you know things that the, the UN Security Council are quite beholden to mm-hmm. the views of the Permanent Five and there's there's always issues, particularly with the US, depending on the administration, about um, what what kind of language can can and can't be in these, exactly. these official statements. And so, yeah, that's my frustration is we, we see a lot of words and a lot of the same words and not a lot of action from the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And Jessica, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I think it's also about time that the UN not just acknowledges different gender identities, but also moves beyond that, like, you know, move, incorporates uh, the, you know, the the agenda for, for all uh, gender identities, like, you know, the protection and the, the promotion. Um, I think that's also something that's missing and that could be uh, could be made a part of a new framework if if that's what they want to come up with but yeah yeah I think that's an excellent point um and possibly one that that I've kind of missed in my own thinking actually now that you bring it to light yeah that that's very true mm-hmm. um so as you were answering I was thinking about all the sort of different dimensions that were coming up so and throughout this episode today we've mentioned gender equality and bodily autonomy and health and rural-urban differences, and now also climate. And so it leads me to the Sustainable Development Goals, because that's (laughs) a a framework that incorporates all of these things and more. And so, um, yeah, we we always come back to the SDGs, because they're interesting and potentially very helpful, and also seem to be kind of, you know, a huge topic in a lot of the spheres of talking about the work of the UN. So Mm -hmm. how do you think that... um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals fit in with the Women, Peace and Security agenda within the kind of context of the UN. And do you think that these two things can sort of help to support and fulfil one another? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's safe to say that gender and security are integral to accomplishing so many SDGs. I mean, SDG 16, the, the main on, on peaceful, inclusive societies and all the priority areas that it, it encompasses. Um, I think, you know, so, so yeah, it, it kind of, it's safe to say that there is a relationship between that. But and on the, on the WPS front, the Women, Peace and Security front, I think there is a long overdue realization that, that peace and, and security, as we said, as we discussed earlier as well, that does not just mean an absence of bombs, you know, it's it's so much more. Um, for example, I would like to uh, mention the the WPS index, the Women, Peace and Security index that um, um, you know that that's prepared by the Georgia Institute for Women, Peace and Security, and how the multi-dimensional approach uh, we take there to women's well-being. For example, so what that index does is it looks at uh, several different indicators for across three dimensions for women's well-being, um, which is uh, it includes inclusion, uh, justice, and security. So it ra- like it, it ranges from women's um, 
uh, political participation or the percentage of political participation or, uh, you know, in the national assemblies or, you know, say for a country, to the sun bias in the country, to looking at the discriminatory norms, to looking at the organized violence, you know, all these things. So I think there's some, some solid overlap between uh, those dimensions of women, peace and security and SDGs. For example, we, we see that we really need progress across the SDGs and myriad dimensions of women's lives for women to achieve peace and security. And it was, it's, it's such a great finding, I think, that you see the ranking of countries across that uh, index and, and you would notice that the countries that score the lowest on the women, peace and security front are actually are doing poorly on, on all other fronts. I mean, including the, the, the peace, the security violence side of it. Uh, they are not doing well economically. Uh, you know, so all other fronts, of, all other UN SDGs actually, they're not doing very well on those. So it is a an, an very exciting way to see the overlap uh, between SDGs and the women, peace and security, uh, security issue and, and the priority areas. Yeah, thank you. And actually, we will pop a link to the WPS index in the show notes for anyone that's listening that wants to go and check that out. So it's a really interesting and useful resource to have a look at. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think very important to, to bring up the fact that we generally do see trends in terms of um, poor performance around indexes of gender equality and women's rights accompanying poor performance in other areas in in terms of you know not just conflict but but other sort of um areas too so yeah it's definitely if we think about you know what's the point of um something like the women peace and security agenda obviously there's a, a justice and inequality element but also we know that ensuring that women are participants in sort of um post-conflict uh, reconstruction and peace processes helps to promote a fairer and better society uh, overall. So mm -hmm. yeah, really interesting and we'll make sure that people can um, access that. So unfortunately uh, for me, I'm almost at the end of my questions. I've <laughs> greatly enjoyed myself and, and I hope you have too. Um, <laughs> something that we like to ask our guests is to reflect on in in any way you like what does the un and this can be as a whole or wps what does it mean to to you and to you in terms of your work um and maybe as an extension sort of your work specifically on women peace and security but what <laughs> does the united nations mean to you in terms of um, your work and your work on women peace and security I mean, it is, of course, a very, very important, very crucial entity, and, and frankly, so powerful that that's the one uh, responsible for bringing this, this wonderful resolution. Uh, you know, they, they brought this about. This is kind of like a revolutionary, I think, for me at least, I see it as, as a very revolutionary uh, way of, of, of writing women in, you know. So I obviously see it as well, integral to the issues of women, peace and security because it wields a lot of power. But also I feel like with, with, with that, it is also, um, it, you know, it, it needs to be more responsible uh, in terms of, of implementing those, those wonderful and very powerful pronouncements <laughs> that it makes. Um, it, because it, it really is the United Nations, the united front of all these of these member states. I think it has an enormous power to actually bring change. And and I think what I see is, um, you know, and, and what I want for the for the UN to be, you know, doing more on this front is more local engagements, uh, giving more voice to the local peace builders, focusing more on the on the on the you know the, the strategies of, of local women's groups women's organizations the way they are dealing with the conflicts in in their countries or in their communities um, and of course the funding mechanism to make it uh, more accessible to the societies the communities uh, to countries that um, that need it and I feel like 
yeah, I think that to me, I mean, of course, very important, but a lot more. Because, you know, I think I, I'm forgetting which book this is from, like with great power comes great responsibility. I think it's Harry Potter. So, um, or maybe some other, but I feel like, yeah, that's what it means to me. Great, thank you. And yeah, I think that's an interesting point you raise about giving more voice to local views and local work. And it's not something that we've talked so much about, but it is something that I've looked at in the past in terms of the kind of grassroots input into mm -hmm. some of the stuff that happens institutional level. And yeah, we, when we're looking at this and researching this, and also people that are working on this within the context of the UN, cannot forget the very important role that grassroots women's organizations have played and continue to play mm -hmm. in ensuring kind of accountability for these institutions and their work on women, peace and security, and also within the context of conflict in actually promoting peace, promoting an end to conflict and mm -hmm. things like um, demobilization and recovery and all of these sorts of things. We can't and the UN can't afford to forget the huge role that these kind of bottom-up efforts play. So that kind of is really important and stood out for me. Um, and I think as well, it kind of captures something that I want to achieve in this podcast as a whole, and that's for us to be able to look at the UN as an organisation that can break ground and bring about huge improvements, but also, you know, we have to hold it accountable to its problems and mm -hmm. not see everything it does as something perfect or shiny or even necessarily glamorous I think that we can tend to have ideas about the UN and what it stands for and we have to be able to think critically about what's missing what's you know what's still got to be done and mm -hmm. so this is a this is an area that exemplifies that we have come quite a long way and we've still got a very long way to go mm -hmm. okay so my last question for you let's think about kind of ideals and goals and what we would like to see and you can kind of have a little bit of a, a vision what do you think a sustainable and feminist peace would look like i feel like well um well peace to me a sustainable feminist peace would be the the absence of of every type of structural violence uh, against women um, peace and security for all um, and you know uh, peace a, a peace that is premised on the you know the universal integration of of a gen of gender perspectives as well as uh, the equal participation at at all levels and in all peace building processes and the reason I mention uh, peace uh, you know building and and peace processes is because uh, you know, it, it, the analysis, the research indicates uh, a positive relationship between women's inclusion in peace processes and peace negotiations and the dura durability of peace. So, um, and I think, as, as I said, research shows that women's meaningful participation in every sphere um, helps to advance sustainable peace. So I think that's my, <laughs> that's my vision. Perfect, thanks very much. That's such a big thing and it's such a kind of great piece of evidence for why this work is so important. But Absolutely. thank you very much for sharing that vision with me. I think it's nice to, you know, we've got to tackle the, the bad, but it's also very important to think about the end goal, what we would like things to look like and, you know, what they would look like in an ideal world. I think it's, it's good for our minds and it, we can pop links to the kind of the Georgetown Women, Peace and Security work I, I think i would just i was gonna say just like checking the i would encourage everyone to to check the website of, of uh, drips georgetown institute for women peace and security and you'll see a treasure of <laughs> of books um, um articles and, and research papers um that i think would be beneficial for the for the listeners to just follow up on and i think it'd be great so Thank you very much, Varsha, for all of your contributions today. It's been absolutely fantastic to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Jessica. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I had a great time talking about this important issue with you. Thank you for the, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the United Nations House Scotland podcast. And thank you so much to my guest, Varsha. 
The hosts of this podcast are all volunteers with UN House Scotland. If you'd like to get involved or learn more, please visit the website at unhscotland.org.uk. Alternatively, you can find us on Instagram at unhs underscore podcast. If you have any questions or would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss on the podcast, please email us at podcasts at unhsscotland.org.uk. Thanks for listening.